everyone. Welcome to the Criminology Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosleib. And I'm Jose Sanchez. And we are your hosts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with organized crime and illicit network scholar, Dr. Cecilia Meneghini. Cecilia Meneghini is a recent doctoral graduate in criminology from the Universita Católica del Sacro Core in Milan. In 2020, she was a visiting research scholar at the University of Colorado Boulder, in 2017, she obtained a master's degree with honors in economic and social sciences from Bocconi University in Milan. Her research interests include organized crime and criminal networks, life course criminology, and the analysis of illicit markets and transnational illicit flows. On these topics, she conducted studies and collaborated on different international projects, including projects, flows, displacement and convergence of illicit flows, human goods, block waste, blocking the loopholes for illicit waste trafficking, and proton, modeling the processes leading to organized crime and terrorist networks. Thank you so much for joining us, Cecilia. Thank you for having me. All right, so before we get started, just kind of a brief overview of where we're going with the episode. First, we're going to start with some general questions on the illicit market and transnational illicit flows, focusing on more basic terminologies, how illicit markets impact society, and getting more specifically into the illegal cigarette market. And then next, we'll move into the empirical paper for this episode, authored by Cecilia and her colleagues on the structure and dynamics of transnational illicit networks, which uses cigarette trafficking as an illustration. And then last but not least, we will briefly discuss Cecilia's second and interrelated specialty, organized crime and the Italian mafia. Jose, why don't you get us started? Okay, Cecilia, so our first question for you is, what exactly is an illicit market? Okay, so an illicit market is a market for a product that is in contravention with the laws of a specific country, or it could be also with the laws of more than one country. And the characteristics of each illicit market, of course, depend on the product that we are talking about. So, for example, some drugs like cannabis, they can be legal in certain countries, but illegal in other countries. So we are talking about an illicit cannabis market for those countries in which cannabis is not legal. Then, of course, we have some other products, for example, heroin, which is basically illegal all over the world, and that's kind of easier to define the situation is very different for other products, like, for example, cigarettes, but, but also firearms or also waste, which are legal in most, if not in all countries. But then, for example, the transnational shipment of these products, it can be illegal. Or some of these products, they may be legal under some specific circumstances. So, for example, some firearms that are sold without a permit. So we can see how the, the characteristics and the, the definition of an illicit market really depend on the products we are talking about. So it sounds like, like it sounds pretty similar to what we think of when we say like things like black market, transnational organized crime, or even sort of like some of that old school smuggling. Is the illicit market sort of consistent with, with these terms? Yeah. So it's definitely what we define as black market. And you were talking about transnational organized crime, and that, that is surely appropriate because organized criminal groups are very often involved with this type of illicit activities. 
So you were also talking about transnational activities because this is indeed the case. Many times this type of activity have a transnational dimension. So they, they start in one country, but then they involve also shipment or trafficking in, in other countries. That's not necessarily the case, but it is very often the case in most of the illicit markets that we have analyzed. All right. So then... What is a transnational illicit flow? And are illicit markets kind of umbrellaed under this term? Yes. So we define an illicit flow as transnational when the product, uh, the illicit product is produced in a country, but then is trafficked uh, into a different country. And not only illicit markets are transnational, because, for example, you may illegally dump waste in the same country in which you produce waste. And in this case, we talk about the illicit waste market, but we don't talk about illicit waste trafficking, transnational trafficking, because there's not the transnational movement. That said, the very great majority of illicit flows are indeed transnational. And this is because it very often happens that opportunities for higher profits are available in overseas, so in, in, in another country. So, for example, a classic example for this is cocaine. So cocaine is produced basically only in South America, but the profits for cocaine are mainly made in North America or also in Europe. So this, this illicit market is transnational by nature because the product is produced in a specific geographical area, but then is consuming a different one. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially the cocaine example. For some reason, that, it, that hadn't occurred to me as some of this illicit flow and illicit market, even though, it, yeah, like you said, just by nature, it is. And, you know, if people are interested, there's tons of stories of people smuggling in cocaine into the U.S. in like boats, just like hiding it in like speed boats and race boats mm-hmm. and whatnot. So that's, yeah, so that's interesting. And so, Cecilia, so how does the illicit trade affect a country's economy and their national security? Okay, so once again, and I'm sorry to repeat myself on this, but the, the answer really depends on the illicit market we are analyzing. So for some products, there is an impact on the economy in terms of unfair competition and losses in tax revenues, for example. But we must also consider the adverse health effects on people. So for example, when we talk about illicit waste trafficking, we talk about some waste that may be considered hazardous waste. And if it's not properly handled, it may be dangerous for people's health. Most importantly, as we were saying before, and as you just, Jose, were saying, these activities are often carried out by, by organized crime and organized criminal groups. So they contribute to finance the activities of these type of groups. And this is one of the main threats in terms of national security. I have one more question for you, Cecilia. Like, and I don't know if you might know the answer to this. And it just sort of occurred to me talking about the the economy. So I've seen some people say that, you know, how illegal immigrants in the U.S. is often like a hot topic and people say like, you know, these, like they're not contributing to the economy. They're getting paid like these super low wages because they're not going through the proper channels. But I've seen some academics say that, well, if you completely remove this workforce, then our economy may collapse, like we sort of need this. Do you have any idea maybe what might happen if you say you remove an illicit 
market completely from an economy? Would it have like a negative impact? Okay, so this question is tough because when we talk about trafficking in people, that's a very delicate topic and right. we tend to treat these a bit differently compared to other markets, of course, because they are human beings. And also they are often people who are willing to move and to relocate. So the dynamics are a bit different and the boundaries between licit migration, illegal migration, and also trafficking in person, which is something very different from illicit migration because you are forcing someone to relocate. Whether with illegal migration, you are just illegally helping the relocation of someone who wants to move. So as you can see, the concepts are, there are many different concepts uh, and it's quite a different issue with respect to other markets. So I would say that for illegal migration or illicit trafficking, you are probably right that there would be some negative effects on the economy. When we talk about other types of products, I don't think that there would be some negative effects in terms of benefits for the society at large, but we may surely see some changes, for example, in prices. So in the price paid for cigarettes or for drugs or for waste trafficking. But I think that for what concerns the benefits to people, these markets can never be regarded as beneficial. I hope that I answered your, your question. And if this was your point. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And actually, I had like, I completely slipped my mind about the human trafficking. No, so, no, so, but, but actually uh, you haven't because that, that's, a, I mean, that's a market we talk about. It's just that it has some very specific characteristics that it's, so, it, it's often considered separately from other types, types of markets, let's say. Yeah, I think that's probably why it kind of slipped my mind because, well, you know, when I think of like trafficking people, I don't like... Just thinking of it as a market, like that doesn't ever really click. So I think that's why it slipped my mind. But no, I think that's a great point that you bring up. And that what you said makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. I do have one kind of follow-up question. Can you, Cecilia, describe like when you're talking about illicit waste markets or illicit waste, can you just describe what some examples of that would be? Yeah. So that's a dynamic that it's quite common here in Europe because we have very strict regulation for disposing of waste. So very strict environmental regulation. So for many firms, waste disposal is expensive and it's much less expensive to just dump waste abroad, for example, to just ship it to China or to Africa and just dump it somewhere in the middle of nowhere. So that's a dynamic that we have to face. So for, for these firms, transnational shipments of waste can be less costly than a proper treatment of some waste. This is a more common dynamic for hazardous waste produced by firms. It can be also something that single individuals can do with the waste they produce or, or with mm -hmm. non-hazardous waste, but it's definitely more common for hazardous waste because it's very costly to treat, to treat it. So then when it's shipped elsewhere, this movement can be legal under national or, for example, European regulations, and this is defined as transnational trafficking of waste. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it can be confusing because, I mean, considering waste as an illicit market, but it's one of the emerging dynamics that we are seeing. Okay. All right. So let's start to kind of move into a discussion on the paper that we'll be talking about. Yeah. 
I'm not sure about everyone else who's listening. I know I've talked with Jose about this, but I hadn't even considered that the market for cigarettes includes both a legal and an illegal market. So I only really ever thought of it as a legal market. But in your paper that we discuss next, you describe illicit cigarette trafficking as perhaps the most widespread sector in the shadow economy or the illicit market. And so my next question is really a three-in-one question, and I'm happy to repeat them if you need me to. But So can you elaborate on the illicit cigarette market, kind of focusing on what it is, what makes it unique from other illicit markets like drugs, weapons, or commercial sex, and the consequences of illicit cigarette marketing or trafficking? Okay. So first of all, I have to say that when I started working on this topic, I was also quite unaware of the issue of illicit cigarette trafficking and also of how extended this market is. Mm -hmm. So the illicit cigarette market is quite different from other markets because it is what we define as a dual market. So because we have a legal market of cigarettes, but then we also have an illegal component or an illegal alternative market, let's say. Of course, we know that cigarettes are legal in basically every country in the world. So the cigarette market becomes illegal when the cigarette smoked could not be produced or sold in that specific country. So this can be due to different reasons. And the cigarette, the illicit cigarette market is quite complex because there are different types of illicit products. So we have, first of all, counterfeits. So counterfeited cigarettes that are often produced, for example, in China, and then they can be consumed in Europe, for example. And then we have uh, contraband cigarettes. So contraband cigarettes, unlike counterfeits, they are legally produced, but then they are illegally shipped or trafficked into another country. So for example, this is a classic example for Europe because we have a common market area, the European Union, but within the European Union, we have very different prices for cigarettes. So there are some countries, in, for example, in Eastern Europe, where a packet of cigarettes can cost maybe like two or three euros legally. And then we we have other countries, for example, France, where a packet of cigarettes is like nine euros. So much more expensive. So contraband means that cigarettes that are legally produced to be consumed, for example, in Estonia, they are trafficked in France because you, the production cost is very low, but then you can sell them in France and so you can sell them at, for example, seven euros. So they are cheaper for French customers, but still the price is much higher than the, the one paid in Estonia. So I hope this reasoning is clear. It's a lot about price differentials. And I guess it's very peculiar of Europe because as I said, the, we have a free, free trade area, but then very large price differentials across the different countries. So yeah, now I lost the last point of your question, I guess. Kind of like what the consequences of this trafficking, of illicit cigarette trafficking is. Yeah, so the consequences are are that uh, smoking illicit cigarettes can entail 
tax losses for the states we are considering. And also, most importantly, it makes it harder for government to implementing effective smoking reduction policies. Because these type of policies are often based on a price component, but then these cigarettes are very cheap and they, they do not follow all the control procedures of legal cigarettes. So it's really complicated then to implement good smoking reduction policies with, with these type of products. So yeah, these are the main, the main consequences. Yeah, Julia, is this just cigarettes or can, does it include things like cigars or other forms of tobacco as well? No, it includes other forms of tobacco, so cigars. And also we are talking about both stick cigarettes, but also, guys, now I don't recall the name in English, so like tobacco not packaged in sticks. Oh, like, oh, like loose leaf tobacco? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like chewing tobacco? It also, yeah, we, we also see it for chewing tobacco, which is consumed a lot. I didn't know about it, but apparently in northern European, European countries, such as Sweden and Norway, it's really a thing. I didn't know about this, but yes. But then the major component of the market are cigarette package packs, so yeah. cigarettes in sticks. Yes. Right. Yeah, so like Jen mentioned earlier, we, we had talked about it because, you know, we don't think about an illicit market for cigarettes here in the U.S. And so I, asked, I actually asked a friend of mine, and now that I think about it, I, I just kind of assumed he might know because he studies substance abuse. Okay. But, but that probably wasn't like the greatest logical leap for me to make. But thankfully, he, he did know a little bit. And he said that it, it sort of is a problem here in the U.S. He's not entirely sure like how big of an issue it is, but that it's not so much cigarettes as it is Cuban cigars for us here. And so, so I, I guess it is a thing here. I just never knew that it was. So, yeah, that it was. Yeah. I'm not really an expert on the issue in the U.S., but I know that also in the U.S. there are some areas where cigarettes are less expensive. I don't want to say something wrong, but I think like in certain like specific districts with a lot of Indian people, I'm not sure about this. But I mean, I know that it is an issue also in the U.S., and I'm talking about contraband here. But I guess it's also an issue for counterfeits, which are mainly produced in China, but then they are really shipped everywhere in the world. So yeah, and when we talk about counterfeits, we talk about cigarettes, which are illegal since the production phase. So they could not be produced and they may be, I don't want to sponsor any tobacco company now, so I'm not going to say any name. <laughs> but I mean, they can be very similar to existing tobacco brands. Let's okay. say this. <laughs> So it's not that they're like fake cigarettes, just that they've been illegal since the beginning of their production all the way through like but the trafficking portion. Yes, they are illegal since the production phase, but they are also fake because they are, they fake to be a specific brand. Okay. When in fact they are not. Gotcha. Yes. And yes. that's why you're saying you don't want to sponsor. Yeah, no, because okay. I was gonna, I was gonna make an example with a very famous brand, but then I really don't want to say yeah. any specific name, so I'm not gonna totally. say. Okay, I gotcha. <laughs> All right, so Jose, do you have any other questions for Chichilla? No. Okay. Good. 
Let's move into your paper then. So this is a paper authored by our guest, Cecilia, as well as two co-authors, Alberto Aziani and Marco Dugato. And I hope I did not butcher their names. No, um, no, you didn't. The paper is called Modeling the Structure and Dynamics of Transnational Illicit Networks and Application to Cigarette Trafficking. The paper was published in 2020 in Applied Network Science. So just to give kind of a summary of the paper before we jump into questions for you. In this paper, Chichilia and our co-authors make a first attempt to reconstruct, map, and analyze a full transnational illicit cigarette trafficking network in a longitudinal perspective using a cross-regional approach. So more specifically, they use data for the period from 2008 to 2017 on the consumption of illicit cigarettes in 57 countries located throughout Europe, the Middle East, Central Asia, and North Africa, as well as data on seizure cases and geographical information for 158 countries worldwide, they develop and outline a social network methodology that can map and determine the size of illicit flows, estimates the transnational cigarette trafficking flow, and traces each step in the paths followed by illicit cigarettes flowing from their origin country to the final consumption country. So hopefully that was a good summary. For the yes. So our first question really then is, what was the inspiration behind this paper? Yes, that was a great description of the paper, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> so the main inspiration for this paper derived from the fact that the majority of analyses on cigarette trafficking are not transnational. Even though we know that the market is transnational, we often don't have the data to conduct transnational analysis, so we often focus on a specific country. So, for example, we can make a survey about illicit consumption in Italy, and we can go and ask people, where did you buy this pack of cigarettes? Did you buy it legally? Did you buy it in a proper shop? Or did you buy it from a guy selling it in the street, for example? And this type of surveys can surely help us in identifying illicit consumption at the country level. But then it's hard to do transnational analysis because we need more precise data on consumption and on illicit flows as well. So we had the chance to have this data and because I truly believe that network analysis can be really helpful to analyze this type of phenomenon and because I really love social network analysis, we decided to conduct this type of study. I also believe that compared to other markets, so we are seeing many more studies on drug trafficking that have a transnational perspective, but compared to drug trafficking, cigarette trafficking is much harder to be modeled because it's a much more complex market. So we were talking about cocaine before, and with cocaine, we know that this product is produced in South America. So at least we know what are the, the production countries. With cigarette trafficking, the issue is much more complex because every country can be origin, but also destination of illicit products. So we know that there are certain countries that are producers of counterfeits. I was talking about China before, but we were discussing before the example about the price differential in Europe between Estonia and France. And so we can really see that, for example, Estonia can be producing countries, so an origin country for France. But then maybe there is a country, for example, Belarus, in which cigarettes are even cheaper than in Estonia. So Belarus is an origin country for Estonia. So we can see how the issue is much more complex than with drugs. 
because every country can be producer, but can also be destination or even transit of this type of products. So I think that this is also because previous analysis didn't really deal with this topic. And this was also kind of the inspiration. So I wanted to model this market, this, uh, this trafficking. And yeah, we decided to do it. Okay, so as we mentioned in your introduction, you have an economics degree from a top program. And we can see some of that economics background come into play in this paper. And in this paper, you and your co-authors mentioned that you're trying to establish a methodology that is not just specific to illicit cigarettes, right, but can go beyond that. But can you tell us a little bit more about how you applied your economics background into this paper? Yeah, so I think that my background really helped me out in this paper because I was just saying how complex it is to model this cigarette trafficking. And I relied on a lot of my quantitative skills that I acquired in my economics program to carry out this analysis. I don't think I would have gotten into writing this paper without my previous background because it was from a methodological point of view And this is also why we decided to publish this paper in Applied Network Science, because it's a really methodological intensive journal. So from a methodological point of view, it's quite complex. And it took me a while to figure out all the the different steps. On the other hand, coming from this background, I had to learn a lot about theories. Yeah, so criminological theories and previous literature on illicit traffics. I didn't have this type of background before. So... I guess that I had a lot to offer also to my co-authors in this sense, but I also had a lot to learn. But I think that it sometimes is good to approach a specific topic from a different discipline because you can have a novel perspective on it. And I think that was the case. Yes. Yeah, the methods in this paper are crazy and very (laughs) impressive. So yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I had a lot of fun. I have to say, (laughs) in developing this. But yeah, it took me a while. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. All right. So now that we've kind of like set up the framework for the analyses, let's dive into like your research questions. There were two of them. So the first one, first research question is, what is the structure of the cigarette trafficking network related to the illicit cigarette flows destined to be consumed in 57 countries located in Europe the Middle East, Central Asia, and North Africa. So what were your findings in relation to the structure of the cigarette trafficking network? Yeah, so I think one of the main findings was that this market has a very complex structure. And unlike other markets, like drug trafficking, but also human trafficking that we were discussing before, is an example, there are many bidirectional flows in this network. So For example, just to give another insight, when we talk about human trafficking in Europe, the main origin countries are North Africa, for example, and then the main destination countries are Europe. Or it can be Mexico as an origin country and then the US as a destination country. And it's hard to see the opposite flow. With cigarette trafficking, we see a lot of bi-directional flows between the different countries And this is because, as I was saying, there are different types of illicit cigarettes. So, for example, counterfeits, they can flow from a country to another one, and then contraband cigarettes can follow the opposite direction. 
And that was really interesting for us. And it also led us to consider that in modeling this type of phenomena, we need the methodology to be flexible enough to allow for this type of bidirectional flows. Another interesting finding was that in when we had to reconstruct the roots of cigarette trafficking, we realized that in many cases, the roots are not necessarily the shortest ones. So when a product has to flow from, for example, Belarus into Spain, it does not necessarily follow the shortest path within continental Europe, for example. It can be shipped by sea and go to the Middle East and then come back into Europe. This is because sometimes these traffickers have the specific intention to make loose track of these products. So they really follow very complex shipping routes. And in other cases, they may want to avoid specific border controls or specific ports or customs, which they know they would be hard to just to go through. So this was also very interesting. And it's also, it makes it hard to, to analyze the trafficking of these products because you would assume that to minimize their costs, they would follow the shortest path, but that's not always the case. So despite the complexity of this network, it was nonetheless possible to identify certain routes which emerged as more relevant. So it was not a random distribution of flows, but in specific areas, we had the concentration of the flows of this product. So for example, we saw what we define as the northeastern route, so the route going from Eastern Europe into Southern or Continental Europe, and then also another path from the Middle East, for example, into Europe. So we're able to identify some areas and some routes which were more at risk of, uh, of trafficking. And I guess, yes, these are the main findings concerning the structure of the network. I think it's the bi-directionality point is really interesting that that is kind of unique to cigarettes. Do you think, and I'm not positive if you just said this, but do you think that's because of like different types of cigarettes or different types of tobacco? And so they're trying to find the cheapest ones and that could be each other's country. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And then also many countries are only used as as transit, for example. So they may be transit for a product going from east to west and then for another product going in the opposite direction. So that's the case. But I agree that this is one of the most interesting findings of our work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the second research question in your paper is, is there an evolution over time from 2008 to 2017 in the structure of this cigarette trafficking network? What were your findings regarding the temporal evolution in the network structure of cigarette trafficking? Yes. So what we saw is that the overall structure of the network was fairly stable over time. But then we also see a change in the spatial distribution of flows. So, for example, some countries which were not relevant at the beginning of the period we considered, then they emerged as more relevant in the following years. And what we also saw is very preliminary evidence of what we define as displacement in this type of studies, especially geographic displacement. So the fact that flows relocate, exploiting, changing opportunities, let's say, So, for example, if we have increased controls in certain countries, we can see these flows avoiding these specific countries and just following a different direction. 
So just to be very honest, uh, we didn't really prove that this was happening, but we saw that there was a relocation. So for example, Germany was a very important final destination market. Uh, and in certain years, we saw uh, cigarettes flowing from Eastern Europe into Germany through a specific direction. And then the same amount of flows in the next year, they just follow another path. So this is, I think, one of the most pressing direction for future studies. So it's understanding why, why does this happen? Is it because there was an increase in control procedures over a specific route or because certain countries became more fragile? So traffickers and organized criminal groups they may exploit these, for example, fragile political contexts and just ship their products through specific countries. But yeah, that was really interesting. So indeed, we saw changes in the relocation of these flows. So then last thing for your paper is kind of thinking more about like the implications of the paper. So not just the future research that you were just talking about, but can you elaborate on some of the implications for your paper's findings, thinking of like the academic sphere and community, as well as the general public and the policy and practitioner areas? Yeah, so I want to start with the methodological implication. I just think that social network analysis can be a powerful tool for analyzing transnational illicit trafficking. Well, I'm for sure I'm not the first one <laughs> to say this, but there have been some scholars who are more skeptical about the use of this methodology. And it may be true for certain criminal phenomena, but I think that for transnational trafficking, it's really helpful to have this perspective on these flows. So, and I also think that having a multidisciplinary perspective on this type of markets can be helpful. So as I was saying before, given my background, I thought a lot about different incentives in terms of price differential and also the production chain of this type of products. And I was really grateful to have this background to understand this phenomenon. But I mean, that's just a methodological <laughs> implication. Turning to policy. So straightforward implication is that we were able to identify certain borders which are at higher risk of trafficking. And of course, we need to focus on our enforcement efforts on that specific, in that specific areas. We also realized that these flows are very complex. So we need to have really, we need to adopt multiple approaches to, to tackle them. And as we were saying, flows really depend on the type of products we are considering. So contraband cigarettes may have a certain dynamics and then counterfeits may have another dynamics. So we need to better understand this complexity and, for example, better dig into contraband cigarettes and study them separately in order to understand their drivers as opposed to counterfeits. Instead, we often tend to talk about cigarette trafficking in general, but they are really flows that they follow different drivers, let's say. So yeah, that's another important implication. Awesome. Yeah, lots of implications. And the methodology, other people should jump aboard and use what you <laughs> and your co-authors have put together. Maybe yeah, forward. and we also because we developed such a flexible methodology, it yeah. could be applied and we also would like to apply to other markets. So that would be interesting just to compare results with other types of markets. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, you know, I am a proponent of social network analysis. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then I, I'm also aware of the skeptics, but 
it does have its use. Back when I was in Los Angeles, it was being used to sort of illustrate the relationship of violence among gangs. So because I, I guess there's always this, this belief that it's sort of like this tit for tat with gangs. Like you shoot one of our gang members, we're going to shoot one of yours. But what this analysis was showing was that some gangs are more likely to be victimized than actually be perpetrators of violence. Or if they have rivalries with other gangs, that it, it may not be sort of an equal type of rivalry, but one gang may be victimizing another gang much more often. So, it, you know, it's network analysis, I think, has, has its place and, and can be very useful when done right, which I think your paper highlights. Yeah, no, I totally agree with this. I have to say, I also understand some people with being skeptic with the methodology because, so for example, at the beginning uh, in Europe, it was used to understand, for example, whether there were some organized criminal groups in police databases. And I get that it can be hard to to apply directly this methodology for these purposes. But then I think that for in doing research, it can be useful to, to draw some very useful conclusions and findings. So yeah, I totally agree with you. And yeah, your findings with this methodology on gang violence was super interesting. Yeah, okay, so speaking of gangs, kind of, not really. <laughs> uh, we're gonna move into one of your other research areas and this is organized crime and the Italian mafia and so and but before we move squarely into this brief discussion on mafia type organizations so the mafia falls under organized crime groups can you describe what an organized crime group is broadly and then maybe tell us a little bit more specifically on the primary characteristics of mafia type organizations Yes, so there are different definitions of organized crime, but broadly, organized criminal groups can be defined as a group of three or more persons who carry out some serious and systematic criminal activity. So this is the general definition of organized crime, and we consider Italian mafias and more generally mafia-type organizations part of organized crime. But as you were saying, they have specific characteristics. So... Mafia organizations are large-scale organizations and they have a characteristics of longevity, so they have been there for a long time. They also have some cultural complexity, like a cultural code or kind of organizational complexity of some sort. And then they also have to exercise what we define as political dominion in, their, in the areas where they operate. And the last characteristic that we need to have to, to define a group as a mafia-type organization is that they are able to control some legal markets. So we were talking about cigarette trafficking before. So it can be that they are able to control the selling of cigarettes in a certain area, for example. So this is another characteristic so we can see within organized crime, we can have some small and also short living groups that comply to this definition, with this definition, but then we have also some large-scale organizations as the Italian mafias are. Okay, so mafias are organized crime groups, but not all organized crime groups are mafias. Perfect, what it like. yes. <laughs> and so what are some of the like, primary differences between, say, a mafia an Italian mafia group and say your run-of-the-mill street gang? Well, (laughs) 
I mean, you know more about Gantz than I do. <laughs> no, I guess that some of the main differences are in this, yeah, in what we define as political dominion, which is something that I guess it's missing for gangs, but correct me if I'm wrong, please, both of you. <laughs> I don't want to say anything wrong. And also, yes, this ability to control legal markets. So these groups are really rooted in the communities in which they, in which they operate. And they have been there because they help communities to work well, basically. And they, they settle conflicts, they enforce property rights. These are important characteristics of mafia groups. We often refer to mafia-type organizations talking about governance-type criminal groups. And I guess this element is what is really missing from gangs and one of the main difference between the two groups. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm fairly sure that, yeah, politics isn't that central to street gangs, at least not here in the United States. Okay, so within Italy, how many mafia groups are there? Where are they sort of located? And so what makes them different from each other? Yeah, so there are different number of mafia organizations, but we often talk about four major mafia groups, which are the Andrangheta in Calabria, the Camorra in Campania, and the Sicilian Mafia or Cosa Nostra in Sicily, and then the Apulian Mafia in Apulia, so what we call the Sacra Corona Unita. These are the major mafia organizations, and then there are also smaller groups, uh, but yeah, these are the main ones. Uh, what was the other part of your question, which I'm not forgetting? So what makes them different from each other, or do they basically operate the same way, just in different locations? So I guess that the way they, they operate is pretty similar, but then there are some differences. So for example, we, we can see some differences in the type of criminal activities they decide to engage in. So we know that the Andrangheta is controlling drug trafficking from South America into Italy, for example, while the Apulian Mafia for many years in the past, it was controlling cigarette trafficking from Albania into Italy. So there are some differences in the type of criminal activities. Then I also have to say that the Camorra, so the mafia organization of Campania, it's quite different from the others because it lacks a true formal hierarchy or organization, while it is more a collection of different criminal groups who operate in the area, but without a formal hierarchy as the other groups have in fact, there are some scholars who do not define the Camorra as a mafia-type organization because it lacks some of the characteristics of these groups. But aside from that, all the other groups still retain the same characteristics I was discussing about before. So longevity and this political dominion, political element, uh, and the control of some legitimate markets. Do these groups sort of stick to their geographic location or do they sort of like cross boundaries with each other? So they very much stick to their geographic location. We have seen in more recent decades a transplantation of mafia groups in northern Italy. So this I was discussing before about the different types of groups uh, and I was mentioning uh, some Italian regions which I guess are not very 
known to everybody, but they are all regions in the south of Italy. But we have seen a transplantation in the north in more recent years. But the geographical component is still quite important because they really exploit some characteristics of the communities in which they operate. So they would not be able to move somewhere else unless there are these specific characteristics. And then, so we commonly hear, at least here in the United States, we hear sort of this term, the mafia family. Are mafia families different than, say, a mafia group or sort of just like a family, so like a term that just gets thrown out for them? The broader mafia group is composed of different mafia families. That's the way they are organized. And when we talk about families, we are not talking about blood families, of course. Even though there are often some kinship relations between different mafia members, but it's a completely new family in which you, you get into when you affiliate to a mafia group. So yes, the, the mafia family becomes the more important thing in your life. And then the different mafia families uh, together, they get together into a mafia group. So yes. All right, so that's a little bit about the group dynamics. So moving more specifically into the individuals comprising these mafia families and mafia groups, Cecilia, can you tell us kind of what the characteristics of the individuals who join mafia groups are? So thinking of their age, their criminal career. Yes, so we see a large variation in the recruitment age of these offenders, but on average, recruitment happens when they are adults, so kind of later in their life uh, compared to other groups. And we also see quite a late onset age for these offenders. So that's surely interesting, especially when we compare these findings with other types of criminal activities. But once they get into the criminal organization, they tend to have longer and very prolific criminal careers. So they commit a lot of crimes, a lot of violent crimes, which are also pretty serious. And they basically commit to a life in crime in the sense that it's hard to turn and go back to the legal world once you are in a mafia organization. We see that the the majority of mafia members are males, and indeed it is a very male-centered type of criminal organization, although we have a a minority of females, mainly wives or daughters of mafia members with kinship relations to these two male offenders. We also see, just looking at their social demographic characteristics, that uh, these offenders tend to come from disadvantaged neighborhoods and they have a low level of education compared to similar individuals of similar ages in Italy and they are not very skilled in their profession. So that's another element that we see. But yeah, I guess that the most interesting thing is how prolific and violent they are. This was something that we expected when we started analyzing data on the criminal careers of these offenders. But looking at some of these offenders uh, who have committed more than 200 crimes throughout their life, that was quite impressive even for us. Yes. And how are individuals recruited into the mafia? 
So again, there are different mechanisms, but we believe from the studies that we have conducted that social relations are really important. So you are born in a context where the mafia, where the mafia are present. And at a certain point, a life in the legal world becomes more attractive compared to legal occupation because you are able to make more money and because you are respected by your peers. So this is an important dynamic. So social relations, kinship relations. But then we also see that for some offenders who are recruited later in their life, there are specific skills that they have acquired in their life They may be relevant. So for example, there are some offenders, some individuals who work I don't know, in ports, uh, airports, or they work in the transport industry. And some specific professions are very attractive for mafia groups because they can exploit their specific expertise and their knowledge. And this is another recruitment mechanism that they follow to get into the criminal group. So yeah, I would say social and kinship relations, but also criminal and also non-criminal skills are important for recruitment into organized crime. Okay. So our last question for you, Cecilia, our last point of discussion is so we know from doing research on on street gangs that it's not uncommon for these groups to have written bylaws or constitutions sort of outlining the rules for that group. Do mafia groups have something similar to this? I would not say that there is really something as a written constitution, but for sure there is a formal code of conduct that these individuals have to follow once they get into the criminal organization. So the, also recruitment is pretty formal. I mean, there is an affiliation ceremony. And yes, as I was saying, there is a code of conduct that they, they have to, to follow, which basically implies the mafia family becomes the most important thing and it comes before anything else in your life. And you must even be ready to die for your, to give your life for the mafia families. So yeah, there are strict rules. And also, as I was saying, there is a formal hierarchy of roles. So once you get into the criminal organization, you have a specific role. And then if if you prove yourself capable of remaining within the group and of your criminal skills, for example, you are able to move up within the criminal group and acquire higher roles and a higher respect from the members of the criminal organization. And correct me if I'm wrong, and I think we'd be a little remiss if we didn't talk about this, but the code of conduct, it, it's called the Omerta, correct? Yes, so the... Omerta. <laughs> Omerta, yeah. <laughs> so the Omerta is a specific aspect of the code of conduct relating to the code of silence, more precisely. So it's basically the obligation of mafia members not to talk about the criminal organization, especially, of course, with the law enforcement authorities. And it is something that really prevented also researchers from knowing more about these groups because they could not talk about it. And this is also why very few people cooperate with law enforcement authorities, even when they are arrested for mafia-related crimes, because they have a fear of retaliation from their group members. And this is also why one of the reasons why mafia offenses are heavily sanctioned in the Italian system because, of course, they want to give an incentive to people to decide to cooperate and diminish the sanction that they they would face in prison. But that's, I mean, there are some offenders, what we call pentiti, 
actually did, decided to talk with the police and disclose some information about mafia organization, but still many offenders prefer not to do it for their own safety and also for the safety of their families mainly. All right. Well, is there anything else that you would like to add before we close out? Not really. I guess it was really interesting to talk with you guys. And I think you are doing a great job with this podcast. So keep listening to the episodes released by Jen and Jose. Well, <laughs> and <you>. uh, yes. <laughs> All righty then. Well, thank you so much, Cecilia. It's been great having you on. Is there anything that you'd like to plug? Any papers coming out? Anything um, at all? No, there is a paper, but I just submitted the revision, so I don't want like the bad karma to <laughs> right <laughs> to go against me. So I think I'll wait for the final approval of the paper because okay. before sponsoring it. But you can follow me on Twitter, where my name is Ceci Meneghini. <laughs> Watch out for the Italian spelling. <laughs> and yes, that's it, I guess. All right, perfect. Well, then, thank you so much. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you, guys. Bye. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share The Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family. Hi everyone, so this is actually a re-recording of Cecilia's episode. Um, we actually recorded with her for our very first episode over a year ago, but upon re-listening to it, we decided, and by we I mean Jen and I, that um, we didn't do Cecilia justice, and so we invited her again to record with us and we think this new episode turned out a lot better but we still wanted to release our original episode so that's what you're going to listen to now it is a full episode fully edited with intros and everything Um, please i hope you find our rookie mystics charming enjoy Welcome to the Crim Academy, where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen. I'm Jose. And today we're here speaking with our good friend and Italian Mafia superstar scholar, Cecilia Meneghini. Cecilia Meneghini is a PhD candidate in criminology at the Università Cattolica del Sacro Cuore in Milan and a researcher at Transcrime. In 2020, she was a visiting research scholar at the University of Colorado Boulder. In 2017, she obtained a master's degree with honors in economic and social sciences from Bocconi University in Milan. Her research interests include organized crime and criminal networks, life course criminology, and the analysis of illicit markets and transnational illicit flows. On these topics, she conducted studies and collaborated on different international projects, including flows, displacement and convergence of illicit flows, human and goods, block waste, blocking the loopholes for illicit waste trafficking, and proton modeling the process leading to organized crime and terrorist 
Networks. Thank you for joining us, Cecilia. Thank you for the introduction. That was flattering. And your accent in saying Università Cattolica was really perfect. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah, good. I've been practicing. He has been practicing. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for joining us, Cecilia. We're really excited to have you here with us. Before we get going, we just want to give everyone kind of a brief overview of where this discussion will be heading. So first, we're going to talk about findings and challenges surrounding researching mafia groups, including one of a recent paper that's come out published by Cecilia and her co-authors that's in Crime and Delinquency from the Life Course Criminal Trajectories of Mafia Members. We're also going to talk about the mainly missing link with existing criminological theories and other challenges with researching mafia groups, and then go into talking about some myths about the Italian mafia to see whether Cecilia can debunk them or whether they're actually kind of accurate. So first, I'm going to pass it over to Jose so we can talk about mafia groups. Sweet. So, Cecilia, if you don't mind, we would like to get into your article looking at the life course trajectories of mafia members. Would you mind giving us the highlights of the findings that you had for that paper? Yeah, of course. Uh, so in this study, basically, we analyzed the criminal careers of more than 11,000 convicted Italian mafia members. And we try to see whether they have different developmental trajectories in their offending patterns over time. And we actually find that this is the case, and these offenders display five different offending trajectories. And it is interesting because in comparison with similar studies done in samples of general offenders, there are some similarities. So, for example, the presence of a trajectory including a pretty consistent chunk of low-frequency offenders. But then, on the other hand, there are also some differences in comparison to studies that focus on different offending samples, like, for example, the fact that many offenders are follow very persistent and violent offending career, which persists in their adulthood. And it may start pretty early, but in some cases, it, it, they also have kind of late onset. So yeah, this is kind of an overview of the main findings of the study. So we read your paper and we thought it was really interesting, especially since the work that Jen and I do, I guess you could say is a little adjacent to what you do, or at least to a lot of people that, that, that would kind of cluster us in a similar group. And you and I had a little bit of a conversation about this prior to starting the episode. But one of the things that sort of stuck out to me the most was this group of offenders that started, basically they're, you guys call them adult onset offenders, that they didn't actually start offending until well into adulthood. But and then I think you guys did a great job in the article sort of acknowledging some of the work that kind of pushes back against this idea of adult onset offenders. And so I just want to get your thoughts on why do you think it is that there's people that are starting to offend for the very first time well into adulthood? Like I think I believe some of these people were in their 30s when they had their first conviction. Yeah. So I think that you highlighted a very interesting point when you say that you may cluster 
me and you guys in the same group of scholars in some ways. And in some ways, this is the case. But I really believe that there are many differences in studying mafia groups and organized crime offenders compared to other types of what you would call still criminal groups. And, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, yeah. So concerning late onset, I have to highlight that, of course, there might be, there might be some kind of bias in the data we used because they are official conviction data. So, of course, we may be missing some of the crimes that uh, these offenders committed when they were younger. But on the other hand, uh, I mean, the group of offenders who have a late onset and the age of these late onset is so high. I mean, it's hard to say that it's just due to the bias of the data. So I think that the main point here is that uh, mafia groups commit very complex crimes. And in order to commit these crimes, offenders need to have a very high level of competencies and a very high level of trust, a very high knowledge of how the organization works and how they should behave to commit these crimes. So they, we actually have evidence also from other types of sources that many offenders who cooperate within the scope of the mafia organization, they are actually in their well in their adulthood. Of course, they may start to join, they may join their criminal group when they are younger, but it's often not until they are in their 20s. So, of course, we were, as you were saying, we were also discussing this before, and it might be that they were committing other types of crimes, but the interesting thing is that in many areas in which these mafia groups operate, so these mafia groups don't really allow that crimes outside of the scope of the mafia group are committed. And there are actually some, so my colleagues in Interest Crime actually did some interesting studies on that, showing that in areas with high mafia presence, for example, the level of ordinary crimes is lower. So you don't really commit crimes unless you commit them for the mafia group. And you basically start to do that later in your life and in your criminal career. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess what makes it interesting, you know, at least for me, is we don't really have a mafia-type anything in the U.S. Like, we don't have groups that are so embedded in their communities. We did at some points in our history, of course, but at least mm-hmm. in more modern times, we don't really have anything like that. So, like, I'm looking at um, one of your tables and your low frequency group. I mean, the age at first crime is like 30 years old. And even, but even the other groups, early starters, high frequency and moderate persistence, like they're all between 19 and 20. And then your high persistence offenders are almost 22, which sort of just kind of bugs like that whole age crime curve, right? That we take as almost a criminological fact a lot of the time. So that is just super interesting to me. Yeah, and so the average uh, onset age in the sample is, I think, around 23, 24 years old, something like that. And so because it's official conviction data, we don't see crimes committed before age 14, because that's basically when you can can be convicted for a crime according to the Italian judicial system. But the interesting thing is that 
it's not like we don't see a cut in the age crime curve so that because we can see it just after age 14, it's just decreasing after age 14, you know, or like increasing up until age 20 and then decreasing. It's actually increasing up until these offenders are in their 30s or something. So that's also why we are kind of pretty confident that this is not a biased picture of what's happening. And yes, so this is uh, why I really believe that it's hard to fit uh, this picture in the framework of many kind of classical criminological theories because the motivation behind the reasons why these offenders do what they do is just very different. As you were saying, mafia groups are really embedded in these communities. So you need to take into account group motivations besides individual level motivations and individual pushes. So now that we're a little bit farther into the episode, can you just describe like the basic differences between mafia type organizations and just your general offender organization groups? Yes. So when we talk about mafia type organizations, we are talking about groups that have a very long lasting story. They have been there for a very long time. And they also are characterized by what we call a cultural code or some kind of cultural complexity. When an offender enters the mafia group, he basically has to adhere to some specific rules and to some behaviors. But another very relevant characteristic of these groups is that they exercise some kind of political control or political dominion in the in the areas where they operate. And this also allows this group to have some kind of control on legitimate markets, such as public works or the distribution of some type of goods, but they have some controls on some of these activities that are usually carried out by the state, basically. So these are the characteristics of what we define as market-type organizations. The political differentiation is really what tends to stick out to me as far as the difference between mafia groups and other groups. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I can't really think about these characteristics being in other types of criminal groups, such as gangs, or also other groups that you can define more broadly as organized crime. And maybe they operate in some illicit markets, but they don't often have these political connotation in their activities. Yeah, so the number of Italian politicians who were convicted for mafia associations is, I don't remember any number now, but it's pretty impressive. So it's not an exception. And so you mentioned that there's like a set of rules that that mafia members have to follow, right? Like, would you say it's kind of like a, a constitution for the mafia? I don't believe that there are like any type of written rules that they have to follow, but it's just an oral tradition of rules that they know they have to follow in, in order to be part of the group. And the whole thing is really centered about being a man of honor. So really showing even when you are not like committing crimes, <laughs> even when you are behaving in your daily life, just showing that you can be respected and you have to be respected and you are able to 
settle your own affairs without the need of the state, basically. It's really a way of, I wouldn't say a way of living, but it's a way of interpreting the role of men in society, basically, that really gets reflected in the cultural code that these men adopt when they join the criminal group. And basically, when you join the group, the mafia group is the most important thing in your life. It's even more important than your biological family. And you need to do everything to defend the group. So even if you get arrested, it's really hard that these offenders will say something about this criminal group because their loyalty to the group is so high. It's, really, it's a really important aspect for the cultural identity of these groups. So it sounds like they take them very seriously at here and force the rules pretty strictly, right? Because when you compare to a group like, say, a gang, they have rules, but they don't really get adhered to or enforced too strongly. Like people leave gangs all the time. Gang members will snitch on each other all the time. So it sounds like mafia members take those rules pretty seriously, right? Yeah, they do. And yeah, you can't really snitch on your fellow mafia members. Even if you are in prison, I mean, there's really the risk that if you say something, the other members of the association will do something to your family. And it happened. It happened in the past. So you know that this is something that can happen. And this is why you never say anything. And this is also why now they set up these witness protection programs in order to convince these mafia members to talk and to say something about the mafia organization when they are arrested and then basically they, they give them another life and witness protection because otherwise the fear of retaliation is really high. Yeah, I guess I have one more question and then we can start getting into the bunking sun mafia myth. So going back to your life course paper, so another thing that stuck out to me was the duration of membership or the duration of, of offending i think it was something along 16 years which yeah. is yeah so gangs have this myth that gets perpetuated everybody knows this myth and that's blood in blood out once you're in the gang you're always in the gang to death do you part but like i said people leave gangs all the time the average duration is two three maybe four years but i mean for someone to commit offenses for in like the name of the mafia for 16 years is mafia membership a lifelong thing it is yes once in the mafia always in the mafia i guess that you can say that and to me what's really surprising about this very long duration 16 years on average is that all these offenders were convicted at some point and all these offenders desisted from crime, so the end of their criminal career was due to law enforcement action. So they got in prison and they could not commit any more crimes. But if they did, I mean, if there was not this action from the side of the law enforcement, these 16 years of duration would even be higher. For sure, that's, we are only seeing here the picture of offenders who got caught. But for sure, there are some of them that we are missing and their duration is lifelong. I'm sure it is. So I think that's 
interesting. So obviously I'm interested in incarceration. So when you're saying that all of these individuals have been convicted, does that mean that everyone in your data has gone to prison? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They have. All of them went to prison at some point. Some of them were incarcerated multiple times. So they were released and then they went back to prison up until we have individuals who went, were incarcerated up until five times. Yeah, <laughs> I that's mean, crazy. Which can... also means that four times they were released. <laughs> right. But I mean, these sentences for mafia crimes are not a short duration of time. And it sounds like they're only increasing. Yeah, they are very long sentences. But the other thing is that they may get the sentence for mafia association only at the end of their criminal career. So maybe okay. they were incarcerated for other reasons beforehand. And then they got the sentence. It really depends. Or, I mean, maybe they went, they were in prison for 15 years and then they went back and they committed more crimes and went back to prison. We have all kinds of cases in the data set because, of course, as you can imagine, more than 11,000 offenders, we really have different cases in there. Yeah. And I also have to say that the share of offenders with multiple incarceration is a minority. Of these 11,000, the majority have only one incarceration and then they are still in prison or they went out. But anyway, but I mean, again, I can't really remember, but for sure there are thousands of offenders who have more than one incarceration. Yes. Yeah. So it sounds like right now the standard penalty for just being caught as kind of participating in mafia activities is between like 10 to 18 or so years, depending on what your level of membership is. And it sounds like it's increasing to more than 20 years. Is that correct? And if so, why do you think the sentence is so long, even as it is right now? Yeah, so yeah, they are very long sentences. Uh, so it's actually, and it's easy to increase it because that's the standard sentence for mafia association. But often when you are convicted for mafia association, I mean, that's just the crime of being part of the organization. But mm-hmm. if you were part of the organization, you are prob- probably doing something for the group, right? Okay. You were killing somebody or doing extortions or doing drug trafficking. So you have to combine this conviction with the conviction for drug trafficking or, I mean, murder. They are very long convictions. So that's why offenders end up in prison for life in many cases. Okay. Yeah. So you were asking whether I believe that, not whether why I think that they are so long. Yeah. So obviously I can see the reasoning for lengthy sentences for their additional crimes on top of their mafia participation offending. But I'm just curious why it is so long for being convicted for mafia participation. Yeah, so I think that what the law enforcement is trying to do is just to make them talk. So, because when they are caught, uh, I mean, they are usually, what you can actually, what the police can, who the police can actually arrest they are usually little fishes, and they are usually interested in the whole, in the broader network of the organization. And they really want to make them talk. And the threat is basically, you know, that if you don't talk, you're going to prison for 15, mm. 20 years. But that's, that's a really interesting point because 
So I saw some investigations in which, for example, they decided to make some, like, for example, they, they needed to do a drug trafficking shipment. And they decided to give the part, like a very high risk part of the shipment, they decided to give this specific task to an offender who was not part of the organization because in case he got caught, it just said three years, four years, or anyway, it just said to do the conviction for drug trafficking and not the one for mafia association. This happens because now, I mean, they know that the conviction and the prison times are so high. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, you can also see some adapting from uh, mafia groups to, con- I mean, to sentences and to the action of the police. So yeah, it's interesting. What's the word that you guys use for mafia snitch? Pentito. Yeah, there you go. Pentito. <laughs> yeah, pentito. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, saying pentito in the con- to mafia members or in the presence is like a very bad, it has a very bad condition. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine it would. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like to talk about as far as your paper or general research? I think that, I mean, I cover many interesting parts to me. I think that I what's really interesting for me and what I um, find it hard sometimes is just that uh, I really wish there was uh, some theoretical attention to this besides the empirical attention because I mean, I love this. I'm in love with this topic, but it's just sometimes it, I have the feeling that it would be useful to have more of a theoretical understanding in the reasons why these offenders uh, decide to be part of these groups. Uh, we know something now from the empirical evidence, uh, but we also need some more theoretical background to fit uh, our findings, basically. Why do you think that a lot of the main, more mainstream criminology theories don't really map on to mafia groups in explaining the criminal aspects of the groups? Well, I think it is indeed uh, a marginal phenomenon. I mean, yeah. in terms of the share of offenders who engage in this type of crimes uh, and also most criminological theories were developed by you guys. <laughs> and you don't really, I mean, Mafia groups and these type of groups don't really operate in the U.S. So I can see why this didn't happen. But the thing is that even in Italy, mafia members are not the major share of offenders. If you look just at the number of offenders, but they are really, they take the lion's share in the number of crimes committed in some areas. So they are really in charge of a high proportion of crimes committed in my country so yeah but i think that's why yes interesting and could you give us a quick rundown how many mafia groups are in italy so we say that when we categorize them we usually say that we have four major mafia groups although one of them camorra which is the one operating in campania there is some debate whether it can be categorized as a mafia type organization or some other scholars consider it more as a collection of loose groups of individuals who operate in a more gang-style way because they don't really have some of the characteristics that we tend to give to mafia groups. So yeah, in, in this case, we would say three 
main major mafia group. So Cosa Nostra in Sicily, the Andrangheta in, in Calabria and Sacra Corona in Apulia. But then if I, we had to give a number of the actual number of mafia groups, it would be much higher because there are smaller organizations like Stida in Sicily and other mafias also in Apulia and in Calabria. So, but yeah, these are smaller groups. So I'd say three major groups. Yes. So is it common to see a mafia group like pop up? Not really, because these are long, like pretty, or I mean, these are organizations that they've been there for a while and they have historical roots. Many of them, like the Sicilian Mafia and the Andrangheta, were actually born in the 19th century, even before. But there are historical, there is historical evidence of their presence in this century. So it's not really that we see new mafia groups coming up right now. We can see because these mafia groups, like for example, the Andrangheta in Calabria, is made up of different mafia families. What we can see maybe are new families that are part of the group or some families that start to operate for the group or these kind of things. But I can't say that there are new groups that arise. So shall we move over to... Our second topic. Mafia myth busting. Yes, <laughs> yes myth busting. Chichilia, the, the mafia myth buster. <laughs> so Jose and I kind of did a pretty quick Google Scholar to kind of see what myths were floating around the Google verse, I guess you could say. And so I we feel have like I'm doing an exam now. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm and so prepared. We... I hope I'm prepared. Oh, good. <laughs> we pulled out three that we thought could be good topics and things that we've talked about before with you, Cecilia. And so the first of which is kind of that the government knows very, very little about the mafia. And this kind of discussion circles around the topic of the code of silence, or I'm going to destroy this Italian word, but the omerta. Omerta, yes. Omerta. <laughs> and so we're just kind of curious whether or not this myth is actually true or if it's false regarding how much the government knows about the mafia. Okay, so I guess that as every scholar, I would say that the answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah. So you were right about the, and you said it quite perfectly, about the Umerta <laughs> and the Code of Silence in the sense that it's difficult for the government to know more about the Mafia because there is this Code of, code of Silence. And as we were saying before, in many cases when these offenders get caught, they don't want to talk. So it's really hard to collect data. And before we had this data set I was talking about that we, we used for the paper, we really didn't have any data, any comprehensive data about the criminal career of these offenders. On the other hand, the government now knows more about the mafia than it did in the past because of the pentiti. So because of some people who were caught and in order to avoid these very long convictions, they decided to say something and they shed some light upon the structure of the organization and how individuals are recruited and this kind of thing. And now with this data set, we know a little bit more. But yes, 
for a long time, the government uh, didn't know much about how these mafia groups uh, were structured and about how they, they operate. You have mentioned the people who talk about the mafia structures a few times now and how they go into witness protection after they divulge in information. Does that happen very often? It sounds like this culture, cultural code of not speaking is pretty widespread. So I'm just curious how many people actually talk about their organization. Yeah, they are not a majority. The one, the ones that they talk. I believe that now we are in the range of like hundreds of entities, something like that. About 500. I don't want to say a wrong number because I'm really bad at remembering numbers. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's around that. But yeah, so this is okay. not the the majority of them. Yeah. And so that this take off with Tommaso Buscetta during like the yeah. late 80s? Yeah, he's considered the first high-level mafia member that decided to testify against uh, his mafia organization. Yeah. Cool. Our next myth, I think this one's a little more American-centric, but it might also apply to Italy, is that the mafia has all but died out. Yeah, so again, <laughs> it depends. So the mafia is much less powerful now than it was in the past. And it is because actually during the 80s and the 90s, there was a very strong action from the side of the Italian government aiming to stop and to fight these illicit organizations. There were many investigations and judges were really tough in these investigations. So they were actually able to arrest many mafia members, especially many mafia members of the Sicilian mafia. So on the other hand, to confront what happened, basically, mafia organizations kind of adapted to and changed the way they were behaving. So they really decreased the level of violence of their actions in order not to get caught. And they started to enter new businesses, which were kind of more discreet in the eyes of the law enforcement. So they run a lower risk of getting caught. So we can really see now that the level of mafia violence has decreased. So in some way, you can say that some of the mafia violence has died out. But on the other hand, we can see that they operate in less violent businesses and they focus on for example, infiltration in legal businesses or money laundering. But yeah, the mafia hasn't died out. It's still there. They still commit a lot of crimes. In some cases, we still see some mafia-type homicides because of rivalry between gangs or they have to settle their affairs and that's the way they do it. But yes, they, they still operate in many different businesses. Cool. And just for quick clarification, the Sicilian Mafia is the same thing as the Cosa Nostra, right? Yes, Cosa Nostra is the main Sicilian Mafia group. There are other groups that I would call they are Sicilian Mafia. I would say they are Sicilian Mafia group, but yes, Cosa Nostra is the historical one. Yes, and the major one. Cool. Okay, so our last myth is that the Mafia is a family business. <laughs> okay, so... 
I think that I can say that this is not true <laughs> in the sense that... Uh, <laughs> Busted. <laughs> We're going to need yeah, a, like, like a sound effect. Busted, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, in the sense that we say, we talk about mafia families, but they are not biological families often. So it's not that your whole biological family has to be part of the mafia group. But you say when a mafia, when an offender enters the mafia group, we say that uh, he's part of the mafia family. But yeah, we, we are not talking about biological relationships. But on the other hand, it's very likely that many, that members of the same biological family will be part of the mafia groups. And the mafia groups are, will include multiple biological families. But yes, biological, the structure of the biological family doesn't really matter in the structure of the mafia group, let's say. So yes. So I think it's busted because it's family business. It's not, we are not really talking about biological family when we say family. So yes, that's why I say that's not really the case. But we need to keep in mind that there are really close ties between biological relationships and mafia relationships and mafia membership. All right. So we fully busted one of them and half busted <laughs> two of them. <laughs> cool. All right. Is there anything that we haven't asked that you'd like to talk about, Cecilia? I think we talked about a lot. So no, not really. There's really nothing coming up to my mind now. But yes, I'm always happy to talk about with anybody who is interested or maybe interested in this. I mean, we might have to bring you back at some point because I think I have (laughs) a a bunch of more questions. In this discussion about the theory, I think it's really interesting too. You just have to start making your own theories. Yeah. No, I was about to say, you guys, make me a theory. <laughs> well, oh, no. no. Jen, Jen and I are trying to get into the business of busting theories, <laughs> not create some. <laughs> well, you should consider this as option for your career. <laughs> we could. We could. Let's see. Is there anything that you'd like to plug, like any upcoming articles or anything that you might be doing? that's coming up for people to look out for? Yes, <laughs> I'm working now, uh, well, as you guys know, so I'm, now I'm working on my dissertation, which focuses yeah. on our topics, <laughs> but looks more closely at criminal relationships between offenders and co-offending relationships between offenders. So stay tuned. <laughs> Hopefully I will publish, well, for sure I will deliver my dissertation but hopefully i will publish more on this in the future so yes so if you are interested on this topic in general just follow transcrime on twitter facebook whatever i think they are also on linkedin i'm not on linkedin so i'm not a very social media person so i don't really know all the platforms that they are on but yeah, as Transcrime, we do really interesting work on many different aspects of uh, mafia groups. Uh, so while I focus more on the individual level careers of mafia members, uh, some of my colleagues work more on infiltration in legal companies, money laundering, corruption, corruption in public procurement, so other aspects of the mafia business in Italy. So if you are interested, just follow our work. And when are you going on the job market, Cecilia? 
in this fall, I will go on the job market. So yes. <laughs> so everyone should be looking out for you too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Look uh, unless me. this comes out after the fall. <laughs> <laughs> Which no. is a possibility, I guess. <laughs> Where can people find you, Titi? I know you talked a little bit about Transcrime and Twitter, but do you have any personal accounts that people can find you? Twitter, yes, Instagram, um, so you can, whatever. <laughs> maybe not on Instagram, but you can find me on <laughs> Twitter. And so I will say now my name, and I'm sure that you guys are, would be able to, to spell it, but the, I'm Chechi Meneghini on Twitter. Instagram. <laughs> now I got confused. <laughs> no, on Twitter. Sorry. And yeah, so also my email is Cecilia, which I should say Cecilia in the US way of saying it, dot Meneghini at unicast.it. But yeah, I guess that if you type Cecilia Meneghini Mafia, something will come out on Google, including my Twitter account and email address. Yep, and we'll post it on our social media stuff too, so people can okay, find it. Okay, cool. That's cool. Thanks. So the spelling is easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us, Chichile. It was a pleasure having you. Yeah, thanks, Chichile. Thank you for having me. The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.